Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Genesis 1-1, we looked at this at our midweek lecture. In the beginning, God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. Now, this is a great starting place, but it's a poor ending place. Christianity is not the only monotheistic religion. What makes Christianity unique is not just that we believe in one and only one true and living God. What makes Christianity unique is who that God is and what that God is like. Our entire lives are not wrapped around, there's one God, it's who he is. It's what he's like. And uh, we see these two questions specifically. Um, constantly raised by various groups of people throughout history. Uh, These two questions to God. It's a great question to ask God, right? Who are you, God? The one true God. Who are you? And what are you like? You know, what we see in Scripture is something pretty interesting. We see that the God of Scripture, the God of this universe, he loves to hear and respond to this question. All throughout history, God has honored the cry of the human heart that says, God, I don't want to know you for who I think you to be. I don't want to know you for who I've been taught you to be. I don't want to even know you for what I've caught, you know, just kind of assumed about you. I want to know who you are in truth. And I want to know what you're like in truth. And by the way, that is what Jesus is getting at here in the verse we read about John 17, 3. We just read it. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God. Now, it's good to know that there's one true God. But eternal life is not just knowing that there is one true God, right? Eternal life is founding in knowing him personally. It's up close and personal. A great example of this in the scriptures is a guy named Moses. What I love about Moses is that Moses wasn't content to just know a few things about this God that wanted to send him to rescue his people from Egypt. All throughout Moses' life, you saw that there was this cry to get up close and personal with God. If there is a God, I'm not going to settle for some vague knowledge of him. I want to know him. I want to get to know him. I want to be confident in what I've discovered about him. And so all throughout Moses' life, there was this constant cry, God, what is your name, right? Who do I say sent me? Your name, what what are you like, in other words? What's your identity? What's the truest thing about you? And then later on, we'll look at it. Moses says, would you show me your glory, right? I want to see the beauty of who you are emanating from you. I want to get up close and personal. I want to say that's the only kind of relationship to have with God. Christianity is not worth anything else. Just kind of being distant. and No, the the essence of Christianity is that God sent his son, Jesus, into the world so that people would be brought into relationship with God. This living God. And Jesus tells us that right there. And so let's focus on these two questions about this God. Who is God and what is he like? I think this uh, brings us to... Um, the A.W. Tozer quote that was in the book we read last summer. I love this quote. A.W. Tozer says this, that what comes into our minds when we think about God, Tozer says, is the most important thing about us. When you hear the name God, you go, okay, there's one true God. But when you hear the name God about this one true God who created all things, who is exclusive, 
What comes into your mind? Who is he to you? Tozer says this is the most important thing about us. It shapes the entirety of our lives and our destiny. In this book that I mentioned, God Has a Name, John Mark Comer goes into this in detail. He says, here's a truth that cuts across the whole universe. We all become like what we worship. Put it another way, what you think about God will shape your entire destiny in life. He gives a couple examples. If you think about God as a, for, for example, a homophobic, racist, and mad at the world, if you think about him that way, this distorted vision of reality will shape you into a religious bigot who is, wait for it, homophobic, racist, and mad at the world. Or if you think about God as a, just want to make sure we step on every toe today, check this out. If you think about God as a left coast, educated, LGTBQ affirming progressive, then that's going to shape you into the stereotype of the wealthy bohemian with the, quote, we will not tolerate intolerance bumper sticker on the back of their hybrid. If instead we think about God as, listen, a cosmic version of a life coach, there to, quote, maximize your life, that will shape you into a self-helpy yuppie, even if you dress it up and call it following Jesus. He says, you, get what I'm, you see what I'm getting at? The ISIS terrorist beheading the infidel. The prosperity gospel celebrity preacher getting out of his Hummer after late night drinks with Kanye West. The Westboro Baptist picketer outside of a military funeral. The Hindu sacrificing a goat to Shiva. The African witch doctor sacrificing a little boy. Even the U.S. Army sniper praying to God before he takes his shot. The peace activist risking her neck to stop another war because she is sold on Jesus' teachings on enemy love. The gay singer who stands up at the Grammys and says thank you to God for his song about a one-night stand. The Catholic nun giving up a normal life to live in poverty, poverty and work for social change. The idea is here, and be careful, the idea here is not one is right, one is wrong. Here's the big idea. All of these people and all of us, we do what we do because of what we believe about God. What we believe about God is the most important thing about you. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about how much of who you are is shaped by who God is to you. This is what John Mark Homer says emphatically, and he even takes it a step further. He says, but there's a, a problem in this often. Often what we can find with this God who shapes everything about us is what we can often find about him is he looks a lot like us. Isn't that interesting? Another quote by John Mark Comer. He says that, he quotes this amazing quote, he says, that it's, it's been famously known that God made man in his image, and man being a gentleman decided to return the favor. I love that. And so it goes both ways. Just as we are shaped by who God is, there's such this tendency to shape God by who I think he should be. And oftentimes what we end up is not the God of truth, not a God who's rooted in the soil of, the rea of our reality, but a God who's just a projection of our imagination, who looks like me, who votes like me, who thinks like me, who acts like me. That's not God. And that doesn't become worship of God. That becomes worship of self. We end up worshiping Ourselves. So, so what do we need here? What we need here is a knowledge of, as Jesus said, who God is in truth. In truth. Uh, it was that passage we looked at last week in Acts where, where, where Paul says that we as the offspring of God, we ought not to think of the divine nature as like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. We, we can't think about God that way. 
by man's devising. Well, this is what I imagine God to be, kind of like a Build-A-Bear for God. A Build-A-Bear for, if you don't know what Build-A-Bear is, it's, it's all, the, all the craze. Um, my kid got, they got theirs after two years of saving up for it. Um, and Build-A-Bear workshops, there's one in Coral Springs now. You go into the Build-A-Bear workshop and you get to um, go through this interactive process where y- your stuffed animal um, gets picked out by you and it's assembled and tailored according to your preferences. So, and let me tell you, it's kind of weird the kind of stuff that you can specialize. Like, you can, uh, you can determine its smell. I guess it's better for a bear not to smell like a bear, so, but I get that. But you determine uh, its color. You determine um, its, its clothing. You, you name it. You give it a name. Uh, you can even record some audio that if you, if you want, like, comforting words, you can. It's actually been used in some pretty cool ways. But the idea is that you build a bear. But there's a sense in which human beings have our own Build-A-Bear workshops for God in our own head. It's like a Build-A-God workshop in our mind. And we customize God to our preferences. This is how I want him to be. So we need God in truth. We don't need a God who is shaped by our own devising. That's not God. So what does scripture give us? And again, when we go into God's word, what we see is that God has revealed himself. This is what we talked about last week. This is why we can know God, right? Remember this? The reason why we can know who God is in truth is not because we're smart enough, not because we stumbled across him, but because God is good and he's written something about himself where? Into the story, right? So what is it that God has revealed? I, I think we can, we can land on two specific things. God has revealed two specific things to us in scripture. It's his identity and it's his attributes. His identity and his attributes. And these are the answers to the two questions of who is God, his identity, and what is he like? And I also want to present a, a bit of a paradox here. Uh, there is this paradox that first humbles us when it comes to what God's revealed about himself. Romans eleven thirty three says, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment, judgments and unfathomable are his ways. There was a great late Christian musician who said that he is indescribable on something else. Okay? Now, <laughs> thanks. We'll be singing next week. Worship team, you're all fired. Um, just kidding. Um, right? This speaks to the, to the unfathomability of God, right? There's a paradox here. Uh, lest we be too puffed up with pride, like a lot of people could be to say, I've reached the end of God. I know him and you don't. I've discovered. Now, there's a humility here that never acts like I've reached the end of God because no man has and no man ever will. Unsearchable. This creates a humility that says, man, really for me, getting to know God, I love what it says in 1 Corinthians 8, if anyone knows anything, he knows nothing yet as he ought to know. In other words, the second you learn more about God, what you come into this grip with is, I don't know anything. There's so much more to learn. Yet at the same time, notice this paradox, there is still this confidence. Look at Jeremiah 9, 24. But let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. So there's this humility that says, I can never know God. I mean, he's so big. He's so grand. Yet there's also this confidence that says, I do know him. I don't know all about him. But I don't let what I don't know keep me from what I do know. What I do know. What do I know? I love Deuteronomy. 
got some verses for you today, okay? Like I said, we're just going to keep going here, okay? Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but those which are revealed belong to us and to our children forever that we may do all the words of this law. You know, as I'm raising my children in life and I'm teaching them all the different areas of life, when I get to the idea of God, I'm not going to just say vaguely, you know, to be honest, guys, you're going to have to figure it out. I mean, I have no idea. I mean, I think he's Jesus. I think he's this Trinity thing. I think he's good. I think he loves you. I think he, but who knows? No. I have discovered who God is in truth. And I'm going to pass that on to my children. God has revealed this to me, who he is in truth. Again, his identity and his attributes. His identity and his attributes is what he's revealed to us. So there's a humility and a confidence. Now let's start with identity. What is it about God's identity, who he is, that he has revealed to us that we can be confident in? Now, um, I mentioned Moses. Moses was a great example of a guy that wanted to know the identity of God. Genesis 1 doesn't tell us the identity of God. It tells us that he was and that he created. Okay, that's what it tells us. In the beginning, and the word used there is Elohim. God. Now, that's typically what we call God. We call him God. He's God. Who's your God? God, right? But that word Elohim, it's not a name. It's not an identity. It's a title. It's, a, it's an essence of being. It's like you being human. But is human the entirety of who you are? No. There's more to who you are than human, right? You have a name. And people who think about your name, they think about who you are. So that's what Moses was after when he was seeking God. He said in Exodus 3, he said, God, I want to know your name. In other words, I want to know your true identity. God reveals his name to Moses. And God says, I am that I am. You can tell that all the children of Israel, it's not just the, that I'm the God of their fathers, but I am has sent me to you. This wasn't about pronunciation, by the way. A lot of people today get caught up in the pronunciation of God's name. Is it Jehovah? Is it Yahweh? Is it Yahweh? It, 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 it leads to all sorts of divisions in the body of Christ. This is not about pronunciation. This is about revelation. God is saying, I am. I am the self-existent one. I am not a creation of your imagination, but before Abraham was, Jesus goes on to say, I am. Before you thought about who God could be, I am. Before all things came into be, I am, God would say reveals his, his identity, his name. And I just alluded to Jesus comes on the scene. This is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh. And you, you know this, right? That anytime in your Old Testament, even in the New Testament, anytime you see L-O-R-D in all caps, that is a modern inscription for the ancient name of God as Yahweh. There's no 100% agreed upon uh, uh, pronunciation of that name. So we, we got Adonai, which is another name for God, and you have Lord that comes out of that, which ends up being the representation of God's name. That's in your Bible all throughout the Old Testament. Anytime you see L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the name revealed to Moses. And then Jesus again comes on the scene 2,000 years ago, and he's being debated with by some of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, and they're trying to get to the bottom of who he is. And Jesus is talking about Abraham really casually, really personally, and they start to get to like, what? Oh, what, you've met Abraham? What, you know this guy? And Jesus says this. He goes, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he says, before Abraham was, check this out. He goes, I am. I am. Now, 
you have uh, the nation of Islam or the, the religion of Islam today will refute the deity of Jesus Christ by going to that exact verse and saying, well, Jesus was saying that he's a state of being. He wasn't actually claiming to be God. But if you read the next few verses, everybody picked up stones and they tried to kill him. For what reason? For claiming, why did Jesus go to the cross? He's the Messiah. He's the son of God. So remember what we're getting at. Well, well, then who is God? I mean, is God Yahweh or is God Jesus? Yes, right? Yes. Now, where are we getting here? In regards to God's identity, we're getting into the doctrine of the Trinity. Who God is, the doctrine of the Trinity. The doctrine of the Trinity is the confidence, first and foremost, that there is one God, this is Trinitarianism, there is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. There is one God who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. We know Deuteronomy 6.4 says that the Lord is one, right? Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, the Shema. Every Jew would recite this every morning and night. This is central to our heritage. There is one God, and he is one. Now, what's interesting about this one God, Andrew, I thought you just said he was three. We'll get there, okay? The word here for one in Hebrew is the word akkad, and it means a compound unit. Just as Adam and Eve became akkad, they became one. So is it two or one? Yes. Is God three or one? Yes. The Trinity is the doctrine that proclaims that there is one God, a compound unit, who eternally exists as three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Now, let me say this. A lot of people, their, their frustration or difficulty with the Trinity is the idea that the word Trinity is not in the Bible. And that is true. Did you know that? Like right now, if you're going to go to your concordance, T, 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 R, okay, there's no Trinity. What's going on? All right. It's all a lie. No, it's not a lie. The word Trinity was, you think of it this way, first and foremost. The word Trinity is a one-word summary of all that the Bible teaches about the nature of the identity of God. It's a one-word summary. Another word for it is triunity. It's just saying that God is three in one. And it was created by a guy named Tertullian, solid name, Tertullian, in in 300 AD, and this word was created, listen, not to just say, hey, wouldn't it be fun to put a cool word on the nature of God that people can use throughout history? No. It was created because there was a variety of false doctrines that were rising up in the church about God's identity. Let me show you a few of them. Some false ideas about God that are still around today. The first is Arianism. Arianism teaches that Jesus is not co-equal with the Father as God, but he was created by God and is not co-equal with him. I just said that twice, but it's okay. All right, double important, right? Jesus was created by God. They also believe that, that the Holy Spirit was also a creation of God, not as a person, but as kind of, a, um, kind of like God needed to get some things done. He needed a Savior, so he's like, oh, I need a Savior. Okay, here's Jesus. I created a Savior, you know, begotten of the Father. So that's Arianism. You have religions today like Mormonism, Unitarianism, Jehovah's Witnesses that are ascribing to Arianism, uh, which was propagated by a guy named Joseph Arius, okay? You also have this misunderstanding of the Trinity called tritheism that doesn't deny that the Father, Son, and Spirit are all God, but doesn't believe that they are one in essence. So it, it believes this idea that they're all separate gods. So there's three gods. Now, some of us, we don't realize it, but we are subtle tritheists, and I want to talk about this. And then the other idea is partialism. 
partialism, that's the idea that the Father, Son, and Spirit each make up a part of God. Like, each are one-third of God. Right? You ever heard the analogy for the four-leaf clover? Partialism. Or, wait, three-leaf clover. Sorry. Trinity. Okay, three. You know, God is like a three-leaf clover. You know, each person represents... No, 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 that's not the idea of Scripture, that they're God, you know, each of these are partially God, or, or tritheism, you know? Um, this idea like you have a board of governors and there's there's separate no those are three different three different um, those are three separate essences okay now you also have modalism which is also still prominent today a lot in in sort of kind of the fringe Pentecostal movements of today you have modalism that's the idea that the Father Son and Spirit are three modes of God you may have grown up hearing about the water ice and gas analogy for the Trinity God is like water. Very uh, Bruce Lee-ish, isn't it? Be like water, right? But God is like water. He takes three forms. Father, solid. Son, water. Spirit, air or something, okay? Okay. Modalism, the idea that God takes on different modes, different aspects. In the Old Testament, he's the Father. In the New Testament, he's the Son. Today, he's the Spirit. And whenever he reveals himself as one of those, he's, well, he's, uh, he's, acting in that mode, kind of like one person with three different masks. Or you might have heard of this analogy, you know, I'm a, like, here's the Trinity. I figured it out. Usually, right, usually what you have is these, like, the egg one, the egg. No wonder people are so, like, <laughs> like, repulsed from the Trinity. They're like, oh, God's eggness, you know? Like, I get it. People try to create, it's hard to understand here. So I, I get the, the attempts, but we got to be careful that we understand what the Bible reveals here. Another common one is God is like me. I'm a dad. I'm a son. And I'm a pastor. There you go. I thought, what else am I? Yeah, I ran out of options there. No more than three things, I guess. But anyway, um, and, and it's this idea of no, different modes. That's modalism. Now, let's talk about some issues with these doctrines by looking at the Trinity according to four affirmations. Now, the reason why I want to give us these four affirmations is it's important to not try to, um, to, to, to you know, I think what we try to do with, with the mystery of who God is as three and one is we try to create these illustrations to go, okay, I get it. I get it, right? Um, I, it was uh, John Wesley, though, that said this. I love this quote. Bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and I will show you a man that is, can comprehend the triune God. I love that quote. It was St. Augustine who said that if you deny the Trinity, you will lose your soul, but if you try to explain it, you will lose your mind. <laughs> I'm trying. Um, anyways, let's close in prayer. Um, so rather than try to explain a mystery, that's not what we're called to do. Explain away God. That's what Charles Spurgeon says we often tend to do about the Bible. We try to explain, let me try to, right? And, and Charles Spurgeon says, God's word, it's like a line. You just let it out of the cage. Just open the door. Go ahead, Trinity. Right? That's, that's the idea. The doctrine. So we want to affirm simply what the Bible teaches. What does Scripture teach? Four affirmations. Number one, that there is one and only one true and living God. That's where we start. There is one and only one true and living God. We've established this for the past two weeks. Let's move on to the second one. This one God, this is huge, eternally exists as three distinct persons. Uh, so the idea here is that um, God is one in being... God, he is three in persons. We can't understand that because all we know is being one being in one person. This is a God who's beyond our dimension, clearly. All right, I am one being. I am a human being. 
I'm also one person. I'm Andrew. But God is one being, what you could say one what, in essence, God, who exists eternally as three who's, Father, Son, and Spirit. One being, three persons. Uh, we see this also in, in the book of Genesis where even God creating man, he, we see this pluralistic language when God says, let us make man in our image, right? Um, and we see this all throughout the New Testament, just the, the pairing of these three as one, um, these three distinct persons. Can I mention too here that the Holy Spirit, we'll get to this, the Holy Spirit is a person, okay? So that's why we're saying three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. It's hard to imagine the Holy Spirit as a person. He is a person, Okay. Uh, scripture reveals him as someone who could be grieved and lied to, all right? Um, so these three persons, so we have Matthew 28, 19, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name, singular, of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Rapid fire round. Here we go. Next one. 2 Corinthians 13, 14, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. There's a variety of these in Scripture, of the, the pairing of these three together. So there's two affirmations here, that there is one God, and this one God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Uh, the third affirmation is that these, these three persons are each fully and equally God, is what Scripture teaches. Uh, they're, they're not, not, one is not more God than the other. The Father is not more God than the Son. The Son is not more God than the Spirit. The Spirit is not more God than the Father. Uh, we, we see that all three of these persons are, are, remember we have the high value of monotheism. This one God is three persons. You have this all also throughout the New Testament that there is each of these beings, we know God's the Father. First Corinthians tells us that all throughout the Bible. This is, it's hard to find someone who will debate with this one. Like, I don't know if God the Father is God. God the Son, the Spirit, maybe. Usually, there's common agreement on that. Uh, God the Son is often the, 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 the biggest form of debate, which I don't know why there is a debate. Um, it's why Jesus went to the cross. It's what the opening gospel of John tells us, that in the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us um, the the deity of the holy spirit is also another one that will be up for debate as people try to argue whether or not he's a real person or if he's god himself um, but clearly the new testament teaches the deity of the holy spirit as well one of my favorite examples there's a variety is uh, acts chapter 5 when ananias and sapphira the bible says that they are li they lied to the holy spirit they were keeping back a portion hypocritically of what God had them give to the church. And in their hypocrisies, uh, Peter says, you're lying to the Holy Spirit. In the next verse, he says, you're lying to God. Case closed. Okay, good. We're done. Beautiful. All right. You're lying to God. The Holy Spirit is God. Um, and then let's look at this next affirmation that the, each person, though they are God, they are not identical. We need to understand this. These four affirmations, that there is one and only one true and living God. This one God eternally exists as three distinct persons, one in being, three in persons. These three persons are each fully and equally God, without one being more God than the other. Um, I think a lot of people, the big issue I see too is you have kind of the idea where Jesus talks about that the Father is greater than he. All right, that's another big one with the Trinity. People go, well, if, if God the Father and Jesus are both equally and eternally God, why is Jesus obeying what the Father is telling him to do? Now, that's a misconception, uh, first of all, a presumption that is wrong, that assumes that, that greatness and role changes essence and being. Let me give you an example. There's a president of our country, 
I think you would all agree that he's in, in, in some ways greater than me. He has a greater capacity than me. He, his decisions, I like to think I, my decisions affect things. He's got some decision-making power, whoever holds that seat. But guess what? Is he any more of a human than I am? Same being, okay? Same being, all right? It's the same with God, all right? So we have this, this idea they're all God, but they're three distinct persons. Now, what you have here is this, this reminder that they're not identical. This goes against the idea we talked about of modalism. Uh, I think a great example of this, it's kind of a simple one, is the Gospel of Mark where you see all three persons present at the same time. It says, immediately coming up from the water, he, Jesus, saw the heavens parting and the Spirit... You have the Son, you have the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son, it's the Father, saying, In whom I am well pleased. Try to fit modalism into that, okay? Is that one God taking three forms? Now that looks like three distinct persons. So we're not trying to lose our minds here. We're not trying to be worms, trying to comprehend a man here. We're just simply letting God's word be true. And let God be true and every man a liar. That's where we're to be here. It's four affirmations about God. Here's the Trinity Triangle, what I think, which I think, which is the best resolution image I've ever put up here. But um, it's a sarcastic joke. Okay. Um, this is, I think, a great visual. I think there's some issues here, but maybe this helps understand it. You have the Son, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Son is God, the Father is God, the Spirit is God, but the Father is not the Son, the Son is not the Spirit, and the Spirit is not the Father. This is, sometimes we're more visually inclined. Um, the only issue sometimes here is you have this idea of like God is separate. You know what I mean? It, it can kind of paint this idea that like God is this extra thing that they, that they all are. But uh, the language of scripture I don't think would let us get too far there. Simply those four affirmations. Now, this is who God is. And listen, let me say this. that This is good news. This is good news. That God is three in one. When we see the interaction of these three persons within the Godhead all throughout the Gospels, we see a really amazing God, an amazing God. We see a God who actually can be what 1 John 4 tells us God is. God is love. God is love. Now, C.S. Lewis goes on to explain how this is the greatest evidence for the triune nature of God. Imagine, if God is just one being, how can he be love? Rather, excuse me, if he's just one person, how can he be love? There's a sense in which if, if God is just God, that who eternally has existed, that he, he can only be love if he has someone to love. So there's a sense in which if, if God is not three in one, if God does not exist as a community, as a relationship, then he actually needed us to be love. He had to create someone to love. But the reason why God can be love is because God is love. He exists as a father who loves his son with the spirit of love. It was Edwards who said that the father so loves the son, that love is so real that it is embodied in a person. I love that, in the person of the Holy Spirit. So just think about God in that way. Jesus says, the father loves me and I love the father. And you look at the gospel accounts and you just see, what you see is you see the picture of, I think, what like a healthy family looks like. Now, if you, let's, let's test our families to this, okay? Here's a healthy family. A healthy family is filled with people who are always praising the other. My wife is amazing. My husband is awesome. My kids are wonderful. My dad's the best. 
My mom's the greatest, right? Constantly, would you say that's a healthy family? I want to be that kind of family. I would love for my kids to say my dad's the best. I can't get my wife to stop saying I'm awesome. <laughs> um, When you look at the gospel accounts, you know, you see each person of the Godhead in a healthy fashion uh, uh, living this way. It's beautiful. You have the father telling Peter, shh, look to and listen to the son. Look at the son. Then you have the son saying, you got to wait for the Holy Spirit. Then you see the spirit comes and what does he do? He glorifies the son. So that the son might direct us to the glory of the father. Isn't that amazing? Oh, you gotta, you got to wait for the Spirit. Oh, man, I'm here for the Son. Oh, I'm here for the Father. I sent my Son. It's this beautiful, other-centered love that we get invited into and we get brought into through the gospel. Now, we're getting into the next part of this where we're wrapping up the second part here, which is what God is like. These are his attributes. His attributes. Are you in Psalm 145? Go there. Psalm 145. Few more moments of your time, por favor, please. Psalm 145. The question here is what is this one God who exists eternally as three distinct persons? What is he like? What is he like? I want to know. I know his name now. I know I have his identity. I know who he is. He's Father, Son, and Spirit. But I want to know what he's like. I want to know his, his details. Psalm 145. Um, listen, uh, like I said, you know, how do you cram into 10 minutes here all that God is like? You don't. You don't. You, you can't preach enough sermon series on what God is like. There's been uh, countless attempts throughout history to try to categorize what God is like. Uh, a common one in theology is the idea of God's communicable and incommunicable, that's a really annoying word, uh, attributes. And these are, that's one way to say the communicable attributes are the ones that God shares with us. His incommunicable attributes are those that he, he's, he, he has in and of himself and he doesn't share with humanity. Now that's one way, I don't like that because it puts kind of us in the, I don't think it's about us at all. I like to just know who God is. Another way is to break God's attributes up into what's called his natural and his moral attributes, like what, what he's good at, his abilities, and maybe his character. And here in Psalm 145, I think we get a good, a good breakdown of what God is like. The first thing we see, look at Psalm 145, is we see David praising God for one thing. And this is first and foremost his greatness. Look at this. He says, Psalm 145, I will extol you, my God, O King. And I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall praise your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts, and I will declare your greatness. So, so David, tell us what you think about God. I think he's pretty great. I think he's pretty great. How many times? Over and over again. There's one verse there. What verse is that? Verse 3. Three times in one verse, he wants to get something in our head. God is pretty great. Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. What is God like? Write this down, number one, God is great. God is great. Now, this, this is such a fun word. I've always loved the word great for some reason. It just feels right. How was your day? 
great. It's just, and it can kind of lighten the air a little bit of what that word can carry. In scripture, the word great here, it speaks of the muchness of God. How much he is, or, or, or the muchness of his nature. The muchness of him, he is great. There's great like awesome, and then there's great like the Grand Canyon. There's great like, wow, that, that's, that's a bit much. <laughs> the muchness of God. And this is where David begins praising God for his muchness. You know, all throughout the scripture, we get these glimpses into the greatness of God. We get this idea that God really is the goat. Some of you thought, well, I thought he was the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. I'm a little, let me help you out, okay? The word goat is a modern, what's it called? Acronym? Good. A modern acronym for the greatest of all time. Is it LeBron? Is it Kobe? Is it Kawhi? Right? No, it's God. God is the goat, okay? He is the greatest of all time. And all throughout script, the scriptures, we, we see evidences of what makes God the greatest of all time. That makes him the goat. Let me give you a few of these aspects of God's greatness. Uh, you have God's self-existence. He is self-existent. This is what he revealed to Moses. He said, I am that I am. Another word for this is his independence, right? We, we looked in Acts 17 last week where Paul proclaims God as someone who doesn't need anything, okay? Um, the idea here is that, you know, like we, we get tired. We, we, we are in desperate need of depending on God. We don't realize this. Like whether or not you depend on God, you depend on God. You get that? Okay. He is the power source that we don't, might not realize it, but we're all plugged into him. The Bible says he's the savior of all men, especially those who believe. In other words, he saves those who put faith and trust in Jesus. But even if you don't have a relationship with God, the reason why you're breathing right now is not because you're good at it. It's because God's merciful to you. You're dependent on him. Guess, guess who God's dependent on? No one. God doesn't need to plug into something to recharge. God is the source that everything plugs into. Okay? He's self-existent. He's also omniscient. He knows all. We see this all throughout Scripture. Um, I love 1 John 3.20 says that if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart and he knows all things. We should trust what he knows. He's omniscient. He knows all. God is also omnipresent in all places all at once, we know Psalm 139, it tells us, David prays, where can I go from your spirit, or where can I flee from your presence? We know Jonah tried this, it didn't work out. Um, just want to throw that out there, if you're running from God today, it's not going to work. It's not going to, he's very fast, he's, he will. <laughs> Usain Bolt is a, is a turtle compared to him, okay? Um, He's also omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He's great, man. He's all-powerful. I love how Jeremiah says it, right? Jeremiah says that there is nothing too hard for him. It's a God with no limits to his strength and his power. Um, and this is a God who, I love this, is immutable. I spelled immutable wrong. And I put the word bile in there, too. That's <laughs> Take out the I, immutable. God's immutability is the fact that who he is is who he will always be. What good news for people who are constantly changing. I'm so fickle. I'm so back and forth. I'm so up and down. Aren't you thankful that God doesn't have bad days? Aren't you thankful? There's, not, there's never been a day where God woke up and said, well, he doesn't wake up, but there's never been a day where a day started and God said, I, I just don't feel like being God today. 
We would know that. We would know if that happened. Trust us. Trust me. Trust God. <laughs> God is eternal. Eternal. This, this is the idea that God has no beginning or no end. Okay? I hear people talk a lot today. They say, man, we're humans. We're eternal beings. No, we're not. An eternal being, we're not, we came into existence. Through Christ, we receive immortality. We become immortal where we don't die. But only God is eternal. Only God is the Alpha and the Omega. In the beginning, God, I was having so much fun talking to Judah about this the other day. The classic five-year-old question, who made God? No, Judah, God made everything. Right. But who made God? He just always was, buddy. Okay, Dad. All right. Um, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Man, this means that God is ruling and reigning with confidence, and we don't have to worry because God will have the last word. Amen? Yeah. He's good. Or sorry, he's great. He's great. So, so I want us to understand this. this. This is what God is like. Now, we talked about this on Thursday a little bit, the idea of so what? Mike talked about that. So what? what? What does that mean for me? You know what this means? This means that there is really only one person in this life that should have all of your trust. This means that God is worthy of your trust. He can handle it. Only, listen, who else? Trust in the one who knows all. Trust in the one that doesn't need anything. Trust in the one who is always with you. Trust in the one that has no limit to his power. Trust in the one who is eternal from, from, from generation to generation. He's God. He's everlasting. Trust in the one who doesn't change when you're changing. Trust in the one who is sovereign when you're going through hell on earth. He's worthy of our trust. But not only is he great, look at this, he's also good. This is good news here. He's great but we need a God who's more than just great. This is what makes Christianity unique. This great God is also a good God. Look at what David goes on to praise him for. Verse 7, they shall utter the memory of your, I like how he uses the word great to transition to goodness, of your great goodness, and shall sing of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. The Lord is good to all, and his tender mercies are over all his works. God is good all the time. Yeah, yeah. It's not church if you don't say that, all right? He's always only good. David says, man, he's great, man. He, he is the greatest of all time, but God is good. But when we talk about God's goodness, we don't mean that God measures up to goodness. We mean that God is the standard of goodness. When God created this world, he created it and measured it compared to himself. And in his mercy, he looked on and he said, it's good. It's good. He is the standard of goodness. This is who God is. The Bible says that, that every good and perfect gift is from him. And it comes down from him, our father of lights, listen to this, with whom is no variation or shadow of turning. He doesn't change and he doesn't become dark. He's got no dark side. The Bible says in 1 John that he is light. In him was light, and that light is the life of man. In him is no darkness at all. There is not a spot of darkness on God. He is too good for a spot of darkness to ever get near him. Just like when you turn on the lights and the darkness flees, God is brighter than the sun in his goodness. He is only always 
good. You know, Moses, we talked about him. He really wanted to know what God's goodness was like. He, he was after getting to know God up close and personal. And Moses said to God in Exodus 30, the Bible tells us that Moses was, was friends with God. Like a man has a, a relationship with his own friend face to face. That's how Moses knew God. And Moses cried out to God and said, God, I really want to see your glory. I want to see you up close and personal. And Moses said, God said, well, I'd love to do that for you, but I also like you and I don't want to kill you. So I can't do that because if you see my glory, you're going to die. But what I'll do is I'll do you one better. I'll hide you in the cleft of this rock and I'll let you see the, the after effect of me, the afterglow of me. My, my back is what he says. And God tells him this, and I will make all my goodness pass before you. All my goodness. Isn't that interesting? The thing that would have killed Moses is the glory of God's goodness. He's so good that we couldn't handle it. It would kill us to see how good he is. Because he's, listen, he's holy in his goodness. He's perfect in his goodness. And we are not. We have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Jesus said, there's no man good but my Father in heaven. But God gave Moses in his mercy a glimpse of his goodness. And, and God passes before Moses. And you can read all about it in this book for 595. Just kidding. But you can check it out more in this book. God passes before Moses and he starts to display the different attributes of his goodness. He says, I'm merciful. I'm merciful. The idea is that God is, the, the word there is from the root that means, uh, that means female womb. The, the compassion that a mother or a father or a parent has for their child, that God is that way. He's not this, this like emotionless being that acts. He's a God that actually cares. So displayed in Jesus, he sees the multitude that are scattered like sheep having no shepherd, and he has compassion on them. Do you know a God that isn't mad at you but feels what you're feeling, that feels for you, that cares for you? He's good. He's compassionate and merciful, and he's gracious. This means that he, he doesn't just feel something and then move on with his life. His grace is he acts in his compassion. So he sends out laborers into the harvest when he sees the need. So, so he looks at us, and there's compassion over our lostness, but in his grace, he sends his son, Jesus. You get the idea? He's gracious, too. He's not apathetic. He's also, this is the best news, he's long-suffering. Someone say Amen. Yeah, right, long-suffering. Uh, some translation says that he's slow to anger. He's slow to anger. Um, and in the book, God is the Name by John Mark Comer, he, he breaks this word down, and he says uh, this idea is that God is long of nostrils is what it means. The idea is like whenever you get mad, um, the, the opposite of this in Scripture is that you are quick-tempered. So a lot of us, we don't know a God who's long-suffering. We, we know a God who's like our dad who's quick-tempered. So the second we mess up, we think God's ready to get us. God is not like your dad. God is not like you. God is not like any man. God is God. God made man in his image. We don't make him in our image. God is long-suffering. When, 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 this doesn't mean that God doesn't have the emotion of anger. We'll talk about that towards injustice, but it does mean that when there's sin, God is long of nostrils. So, so when you get upset, when you are ruling your spirit, right, what do you do? You close your mouth and you, right, you breathe through your nose. If you never thought about that, it's a great practice, by the way. Next time you get angry, just even if they go, what are you doing? Just say, okay, just do it. It's, it's a woosah, right? It's, it's patience. He's patient. This is God. Slow to anger. Scripture says, be angry. Don't sin. 
He's patient. He doesn't doesn't have a short fuse. He's long-suffering, okay? God is much more patient with you than you are sinful. He's faithful. The idea there is that he's faithful to his promises. Up here, guys. I don't know what's going on over there. Up here, right? He's faithful to his promises. So whatever he commits to, you can trust in him. He's got covenantal love. He's abounding in goodness and truth. It's a covenantal word that God keeps his promises. He's good, and he's forgiving. Good news. He's forgiving. It means he takes the sin away. Forgiving thousands. Forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin is what he tells Moses. Uh, iniquity is like, it's just general, like a, it's a garbage bin of all the sins we do. Uh, wickedness is blatant sin. You ever like, you knew the wrong thing, and you, it wasn't like temptation. It was like, that looks fun. I'm going to do that, okay? That's wickedness. And then there's sin, which is, which is any way that I miss the mark. Whether I mess up, whether I blatantly run into it, God's forgiveness doesn't go, well, what kind of sin is it? He's just a forgiving God. This is all displayed in Jesus, and also he is just. He's just, meaning he's righteous. This is, by the way, if God was all these things and not just, he wouldn't be good. He wouldn't be good. But he is just. And then uh, I'll invite the worship team to come up. I know we're going to close out here. I want to give you one last one. God is glorious. Um, This is where we'll wrap up. God is glorious. Um, As David wraps up this psalm, are you still in Psalm 145? You still still here? Did you go to lunch? Okay, good. All right, Psalm 145, verse 10 says, All your works shall praise you, O Lord. Your Your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts and the glory, the glorious majesty of his kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your, your, kingdom, your dominion endures throughout all generations. So you have this idea that God is good. You have this idea that God is great. And then David, lastly, he's praising God because God is glorious. God is glorious. So the fact that God is good, or rather the fact that God is great means that he's worthy of my trust. Okay, let's think about this. This is who he is. He's worthy of your trust. The fact that God is good, you know what this means? It means that he's worthy of your love. When you taste and see that the Lord is good, no one has to tell you to love God. We love him because he first loved us. We love him because he was first so good to us. His goodness teaches us that he's worthy of our love, but his glory it means that he's worthy of everything. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our whole lives. In fact, his gloriousness, it's often used in Scripture to describe uh, the, the, the beauty of all that he is emanating out from his very being. This is what Moses saw when he saw his goodness. This is what the children of Israel saw when they watched his greatness. They saw his glory. His glory which comes out in such a way that it forces man to fall down on their knees and worship, worship, worship the one true God of Israel. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.